0: Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church on this last weekend of 2018. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1. This has been our Advent teaching series, Christmas at Desert Breeze 2018. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see has been the title of this series taken from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The wonder of the incarnation. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. So let me kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us. In John chapter 1, we have the meaning of Christmas, why Jesus came into the world. The wonder of the incarnation is the light he brings. We looked at that in the first week, verses 1 through 11. The life he gives, verses 12 and 13. That was the second week. And then the glory he reveals, that was last weekend, verses 14 through 18. Darren did a great job at summarizing all three of those on our Christmas Eve. How many were here for Christmas Eve services? Man, we had a packed house for two services, had to send people to the overflow. We had a great time. It was amazing, and so now this weekend we've wrapped this series up. We talk about the power he provides for life change, verses 19 through 34. And uh, this is what we need to understand about this power that he brings for life change, is that nothing has the power to transform our lives, your life, my life, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is really about intimacy with God, and nothing can transform your life like intimacy with God, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Intimacy with God is enjoying the riches of God's glory. Talked about that last week. And the riches of God's glory is his indescribable greatness and unimaginable goodness. And so in our text here this weekend, we see some very deep changes in John the Baptist. And if that is true about him, though he knows very little about the coming of the Messiah compared to us, even more so should that be true about us. So let me just ask this quick question here. As we head into 2019, how many would say that you got a couple items on your list that you would like to change in your life personally? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, not near enough people are raising their hand. So maybe you're thinking about the person sitting next to you. You have a, a number of items on that list for the person sitting next to you that you would like for them to change. Anybody would say? Okay. Okay, there's a few hands there. So, I mean, w- whether we realize it or not, we all need change, Okay. And uh, if you have a little bit of a problem trying to come up with something on your list that you need for change, just ask the people sitting around you, okay? Or <laughs> ask the people closest to you. I know that my wife has a list for me, and boy, do I have a list for her. I mean, we all have our list. We all need change, unless you've just kind of given up on it, but the, but the gospel is about life change. And what we're talking about here this, uh, this weekend as we head into a new year is that we're going to talk about life change and how the gospel brings that kind of life change. Here's the thesis statement for our teaching here this morning Power for life change, power for life change happens through a healthy view of self. Healthy view of self. You'll see these three items a healthy view of self. A healthy view of self comes from a healthy view of God. You need to have a healthy view of God. And then out of this healthy view of God, this healthy view of God gives us a, a an identity, a new identity that is received and not achieved. So it's a healthy view of self. You need to have a healthy view of God and then an identity that is received and not achieved. That's where we're headed with our study this morning. And uh, let's, let's pray once again before we read our text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment here. So, Father God, we are delighted to be here today, and as we wrap up this this year and head into a brand new year, if we are honest, all of us have things in our lives that desperately need to be changed. We have doubts, questions, fears that keep us from fully trusting you. We have sinful attitudes and actions that keep us from fully revealing you. In our lives, we have hurts and habits and hang-ups that keep us from fully enjoying and living for you. So we pray through this study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to experience the life-transforming power of the gospel, liberating our lives and satisfying our souls for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, Amen. amen. Let me read the text here. And we've been working our way through this gospel uh, of John chapter one. We pick up our reading in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? You see that twice. Who are you? We're looking at the identity of John the Baptist. And they said, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then then why are you baptizing? if, If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he ha- because he was before me I myself did not know him but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel and John bore witness this weekend so grab a uh, look at your notes there and so here we go power for life change happens through here's the first on your fill in the blanks first one on your uh notes a healthy view of self a healthy view of self Look at verses 19 and 22. They ask twice, who are you? So this is about John's self-image or his identity. Now listen to me. I believe that he is the epitome of healthy psychology. We have have a lot of pathological issues in our culture today. A lot of people, a lot of narcissism, a lot of self-absorption, a lot of self-centeredness. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's all around us. And yet John the Baptist is showing us Truly, he's the epitome of healthy psychology. We all want to be healthy in how we view ourselves, and he's going to show us that. In fact, there's two characteristics that we see in him that help us to understand this healthy psychology. And the first one is that he was humble, he's very humble. And we've defined humility like this it's there on your notes it's not thinking less of yourself thinking of yourself less. It's a self-forgetfulness. Now, what would be the opposite? Ask the person next to you, what's the opposite of humility? What's the opposite of humility? Real quick, what would they say? Okay, so pride. How many are thinking pride? That would be the opposite? Yeah. In fact, I gave you some verses here that helps us with that. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Galatians 5, 26, uses the word conceit which is pride. But I like that word in particular because this would be the opposite of humility. And the word for conceit in the King James Version uses the word vain glory. Vain glory. Vain means empty. And what are you empty of? You're empty of glory. Glory would be weight, matter, importance, significance. So you're empty of that is what it's saying. So pride is driven out of an an emptiness of of glory. You're glory-hungry. And it comes in a couple different forms, this this glory-hunger. One form would be boasting, I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. The other form would be self-pity, I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. It could also be seen in our envy, envy of others. Those are the different ways of, of looking at that. And uh, in fact, Galatians 5.26 talks about don't be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Provoking would be the superiority uh, complex, and then envying one another would be the inferiority complex. But, but this, this idea of conceit is, is driven by a need to prove to yourself and others that you matter. So it's empty of that glory. It's a glory hunger. I'm desperate to prove to the world that I'm an important person. And that's, that's our fallen condition, by the way, apart from God, because he's the one that we should get that sense of meaning and that we matter. But when we don't go to him to get it, we're going to be empty of it. We're going to try to find it in the world. The proud are self-absorbed. So if the humble person is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, it's a self-forgetfulness, then the proud would be someone who's very self-centered and self-absorbed. It's, it's like, how how am I, how am I looking? How am I doing? How am I performing? How am I being treated by others? That would be the proud person. They're preoccupied with self because they're desperate to fill up the emptiness inside. Which, by the way, that's what drives a lot of our addictive behavior because we can't find the satisfaction in created things. Rather than go back to the Creator, we just medicate ourselves on all sorts of things in our culture today. But you'll notice that John the Baptist here, verses 20 through 23, when he's asked, Who are you? he says, Well, I'm not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, I'm just a voice. And why would he say, obviously, he's not the Christ. They were waiting for the Messiah to show up. He said, well, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. Why would they say and, and confuse him maybe with Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, Malachi 3.1 and 4, five. there's a prophecy about the forerunner of the Messiah who will be like Elijah. That's who they were looking for. So then are, are you Elijah? Based on that prophecy, what about this idea of the prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, Moses talks about a prophet that will come and lead God's people, and he says, "Well, I'm not the prophet." Now, here's what's fascinating about this: is that in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said that no one is greater than John the Baptist. And he also says in Matthew seventeen twelve through thirteen, he said that John was the Elijah, and yet here John is saying, "I'm not the Elijah that was to come." So what what's going on here? Well, John had no idea about his own greatness. And when someone doesn't see their own grace, greatness, it's either because they are a self-absorbed perfectionist, they're, they're nitpicking their life, which there is nothing more miserable than the endless, unsmiling concentration on self, or... They're not self-absorbed at all because they are focused on someone else. And that's what's going on with with John, John the Baptist. In fact, he has this humility going on. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's self-forgetfulness. Here's the next characteristic of this uh, real healthy psychology. Not only will you have humility, but you will also have boldness. There will be a boldness about your life. Now, here, here's the definition of this boldness that we see in John the Baptist. It's being, it's being controlled by the love and word of God rather than people-pleasing. So a person that's bold is being controlled by the love and word of God rather than what people think about them or the rejection of people. Now, we're talking about relationships here in uh, So so let me just, let me tell you this, because you can see it in John the Baptist, and this applies to our life here. Any love, any love that is afraid to confront others, if you say you love others, but you're afraid to confront them, any love that is afraid to confront is really not love, but a kind of emotional hunger, a selfish desire to be loved, I mean, if you, if you have any relationships where you feel like you're walking around on eggshells and you know that someone needs to, they, somebody needs to confront them, but I'm not going to confront them, and oh, I don't know what to say, and, and if you're afraid to speak the truth and do that in love to them, that's not actually really love. That's, a, that's a, an emotional hunger, a selfish desire to be loved. It's extremely pathological. It's unhealthy. There's a codependency going on there. You don't see that with him. There's a great deal of humility, and yet there's a boldness. Verses 24 through 26, John is calling people to repentance. He's he's confronting the people of his culture. John's baptism was for both Jew and Gentile, and that was totally unusual. Jews didn't get baptized. Only Gentiles do, because they were unclean, and it was self-administered. So a Gentile that wanted to convert to Judaism would baptize himself so that he could be Be a Jew. But here John is baptizing both. He's calling both Jews and Gentiles to be baptized, to repent, to open their hearts to the Messiah. He challenged the religious order, and he wasn't afraid to do that. But he also challenged the social order. He leveled the playing field by saying all need to be baptized. It doesn't matter your race, gender, social status, religious affiliation. I mean, he stood up to the culture. So there's this humility, and yet there's this amazing boldness He baptized them himself, which was highly unusual. So he's baptizing people. It's almost as if he says, I don't care what you think about me. I'm doing what what I've been called to do. And I like his attitude. It's a little bit like Paul's attitude found in Galatians 1.10. For I am not seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I... He says, "For I am, for am I?" He's asking the question. Actually, "For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." Same attitude is found in First Thessalonians two four. I, I think what he's teaching us here is really he's modeling for us uh, what we are taught in Ephesians four fifteen and twenty five. By the way, all healthy relationships, whether it be vertically or horizontally, there will be this mutual giving and receiving of truth and love. You will speak the truth in love, and you will receive the truth in love. There should be that mutual giving and receiving of truth and love, this way and that way. I'm not going to expound on it. I've talked about it in the past, but I've got this on your notes. So truth would be boldness. Love would be the humility, but it's like this. Truth without love is self-righteous superiority, so if I'm just going to set things straight, I don't like what you did, I'm going to come after you, and you do that, you speak the truth, but it lacks the love, you have a self-righteous superiority. That's, that's called conceit. That's pride. There's a You're glory hungry is, is what it is. Love without truth is self-indulgent inferiority. These statements are on your notes there, so you can go back and think about them, reflect on them, we tend to swing to one of those two extremes, but the self-indulgent inferiority is this person that has this emotional hunger, this selfish desire to be loved, and they're afraid to speak the truth, and therefore you enable the dysfunction in that relationship, And uh, and so... Pretty fascinating. John the Baptist was humble and bold. So, if you want to be healthy psychologically, there will be this humility and boldness. You're not going to tower over people, nor will you cower to anybody. There won't be this attitude of superiority, like you're better than everybody. You're talking down and condescending and. Sanctimony is kind of an attitude that we often see in our culture today, talking about other people when people talk about them. and You're not going to have that superiority, nor will there be an inferiority where you're cowering to any group of people. It's a, it's a blessed self-forgetfulness. I, I love what uh, Timothy Keller says in his book. It's really a great book. It's a small book. It's actually based on a message that I've heard over and over again. And it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to to true Christian joy. It's just a small book, but listen to what he says here. He says, friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it. Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others, or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets, wouldn't you like to be free of them? When you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did, to love it the way you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done. For if not to matter, for it not to matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it you are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you are just so happy to see it that's a blessed self forgetfulness so there's this so this idea of a healthy Healthy psychology, healthy psychology is being humble, and yet it's also being bold, speaking the truth in love, mutual giving and receiving of truth and love in relationships, really healthy. And this healthy view of self, humble boldness comes from, here's the next one, comes from a healthy view of God. You're not going to be able to have that in your life. You're not going to be healthy psychologically apart from a healthy view Of God, healthy view of God. That's that next fill in the blank there. Now, our concept of God, think about this, our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with Him. Would you agree with that? So, how's how's your relationship with God doing? See, if your relationship with God is not vibrant, growing, and flourishing, you have a problem with your concept of God. Inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. All these negative emotions happens when the superficialities of our concept of God meet the realities of this world, sin and suffering. Right. So your, your theology is put to the test when you go through difficulties. Do you have a, such a rich, robust theology, a, a rich understanding of God in such a way that when you go through difficulties, you don't cower or tower, you, it's a blessed self-forgetfulness. You put on display the glory of God. You just, you know that He's with you, He's for you, He's gonna take care of you. Inordinate anxiety, anger, depression happens when the superficialities of our faith, our theology, our concept of God meet the realities of this world. Sin and suffering. American Christian culture has a very small domesticated view of God, and I'm speaking generally, I'm not talking about here at Desert Breeze, because I think that we have a really a big, a high view of God here. We teach that regularly. But I think overall, American Christian culture has a very small domesticated view of God. Our church services are more like pep rallies with practical tips for living rather than encounters with the living God who is indescribably great and unimaginably good. And, and the reason why I say it, I don't believe it's consistent with here, because you guys come wanting not to be entertained, but to have an encounter with God. And there's churches in the, in the valley that you'll be entertained. You can go and be entertained. People leave this church to go and be entertained in those churches. But, but I can tell the difference, because when people want to encounter God, I don't need to be entertained. I want an encounter with God. And, and you can see the difference in a person's heart. That's, that's what we want. That's what the Bible teaches, because, and the reason why you want that is because a small domesticated view of God is fine as long as your faith isn't, isn't tested, as long as your faith goes untested. But it is utterly insufficient in the middle of serious questioning and intense suffering. So what kind of a view of God do you have? Your concept of God determines the quality of your relationship with God, and I can tell you the concept that you have with God based on how you handle trials and difficulties and temptations and, and suffering. When you go through suffering, it's going to put on display your theology, your concept of God. That's why Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24, these were, that was one of the first couple verses that we taught our kids growing up in our home. Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows God, <laughs> he has intimacy with God. What the writer is saying there is that the wealthiest, the wisest, the strongest, the wealthiest people on this planet have nothing on those who have intimacy with God that's what he's saying when you realize what you have in God nothing even comes close when you have that high view of God uh, Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom you want to be wise in life it starts with the fear of the Lord awe and wonder joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Intimacy with God gives you insight about life. You begin to understand what's going on and how to respond more appropriately. John 17, three, for this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is he saying there? He's saying here's the life that most people dream about. It's only found in intimacy with God and knowing him. And so it comes from a healthy view of God, this humble boldness, a healthy view of self. Humble boldness comes from a healthy view of God. What is this healthy view of God? We talked about it last week. Let me expound on it just a little bit more. It's this indescribable greatness it's indescribable greatness of God. That's the next fill in the blank. So, which should create within us awe, and that should humble us. Look at uh, verse 23. John the Baptist said, he, he said this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, he's quoting from Isaiah 40, and what he's actually saying is the one I'm talking about is God himself, is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. This is God in the flesh. Verses 26 and 27. John the Baptist says, He is here among us, and I am unworthy to untie his sandals. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? The kind of language that he's using? Un- unworthy to tie his sandals. Now, in that day, uh, like in every culture, there are those things that are really despicable things to do. And in that day, it was to wash someone's feet because they walked around in sandals on really dirty streets. And so they had stinky, smelly, horrible feet. And for you to touch someone's feet or to wash their feet, only. Servants or slaves were required to do that. Nobody else had to do that. And, and it would be very common in this day and time for, for them to say to an emperor or to the king, I'm only worthy to untie your shoelaces or your sandals. But John doesn't say that. John says, I'm not even worthy to aspire to that level. So what is John saying here? Jesus is greater than the greatest people of world history. He is beyond any earthly king or emperor. He's indescribably great. He's saying, wow, and ah, and I'm humbled by that. There's this humility that he's experiencing in his life. Verse 34 of our text, he says, this is the Son of God. And then we also know he's not only indescribably great, which creates awe and humility, but he's unimaginably good, Un- unimaginable goodness, is you're in the blank there, goodness, which brings intimacy and boldness. And in verse 29, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're anything like me, you struggle by narrowing the gap between your beliefs and your behavior. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, when people, things, and circumstances go a certain way, sometimes my behavior betrays I really don't believe as I say I believe. Okay, does that make sense? So I believe that Jesus is always with me. Nothing will ever separate me from his love and he's enough to get me through anything and yet sometimes my behavior would say otherwise, okay? I would would have this inordinate anxiety or anger or depression in my life that would be inconsistent with my, my beliefs. So how do I narrow the gap between my beliefs and my behavior? I believe he's telling us right here. He says behold. It's in the beholding of the Lamb of God, that's what helps me to narrow the gap between my, behave, my beliefs and my behavior. When I'm, when I'm there, when I'm, I realize, hey, wait a minute, my behavior is way off from my beliefs, what do I need? I need a good dose of beholding, being captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. I need to be reminded of the gospel truths that, I've, that I have forgotten, in the moment of, of difficulty in my life, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he's talking about here, he's really basically saying, and we see this from Old Testament into the New Testament, all Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to this ultimate sacrifice, Hebrews 10.10. And so let's take a look at now both of these. So, so where do we see this demonstrated? Well, we see it in the life of Jesus, both that he's indescribably great and, and unimaginably good, but the best place this is seen is in the cross. The wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross is that it both reveals and satisfies the greatness and the goodness of God. It's quite spectacular, actually, when you look at the cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ, you see both the greatness and the goodness of God. The greatness of God, yeah, that he's just. The goodness of God, yes, that he's the justifier. Romans 3:26 uses that language that he's both just and he's the justifier. Let me expound on that a little bit more. See, the greatness of God. God is that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for our sins. He's holy, and we're sinful, and we're separated from him, and something has to be done to bridge the gap that separates us from him. God's not going to lower his standard, nor is he just going to wink at us and say, oh, everything's okay, I approve of your rebellion against me. No, he can't do that because he is just, holy, and righteous. That's the greatness of God. But the goodness of God is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification and reconciliation. That's his love, mercy, and grace. And what's so amazing is that when you see the cross of Jesus Christ, and this is what he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you see this collision. You see this coming together of both the greatness of God and the goodness of God, that he's just and he's the justifier all in the same event. You see, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. His greatness and his goodness put on display for us and that should ravish our hearts. That should get a hold of us and it should both humble us and give us confidence and boldness. When you look at the cross, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. Wow, and mmm, satisfying. He's amazing, and yet he's so satisfying. You celebrate grace, that's what we're talking about here, God's unmerited favor in our lives. You celebrate grace most joyfully when you've mourned your sin most deeply. I love what uh, Sam Storms says. He kind of really tells us a little bit, I think. It's a great book. It's called Pleasures Evermore The Life Changing Power of Enjoying God. And so, this is what should be taking place in your life. This would be normal Christianity for us that are really living in light of the cross, that we see both the, that God is just and He's justifier. He's great. He's good in all that he's done for us. Listen to what Sam Storm says. He says, why spend time and energy on the character and the beauty of of God and Jesus? The answer is easy. It is so that you will walk around spiritually dazed with your mouth wide open and your eyes bulging from your head. Why? Listen to me. Because spiritually stunned people are not easily seduced by sin. People in awe of God find sin less appealing. When you are dazzled by God, it is hard to be duped by sin. When you are enthralled by his beauty, it is hard to become enslaved by unrighteousness. People whose attention has been captured by the beauty of Christ find little appeal in the glamour of this world. People whose hearts are enthralled with the revelation of God's greatness turn a deaf ear to the sounds of sirens. They've heard a sweeter song. That's good stuff. That's, yeah, I want that. Oh, my goodness. That's normal Christianity, by the way. That's normal Christianity. So a healthy view of self, humble boldness comes from a healthy view of God, indescribable greatness, unimaginable goodness. Number three, here it is, giving us an identity that is received, not achieved. Giving us an identity that is received, not achieved. Now, the Pharisees are interrogating John because they are envious of his popularity. It tells us in John 5.44 and 12.43 that the Pharisees loved the glory that came from man rather than God. So they were glory hungry. What does that tell you? When someone's conceited and they're trying to people please and they're asking, well, who, who are you? Why'd you come here? And what are you about? And they're, they're feeling threatened. And so John is humble and bold because his identity is in Christ. In fact, if you want to read a little bit more about John the Baptist, John chapter 3 talks about how John's disciples begin to follow Jesus. And some of them even coming to John say, John, what are you going to do about this? They're following Jesus. He goes, are you kidding me? That's why I'm here. May I decrease, may he increase. John 33, this this blessed self-forgetfulness, this desire to honor Christ Jesus So let's talk a little bit about this achieved identity because this is what the Pharisees had. Achieved identity. That's your next fill in the blank on your notes, by the way. And so this is what an achieved identity looks like. Success will go to your head. It will inflate you. And failure will go to your heart. It will deflate you. I wish I would have learned this years ago. This was stuff that helped me so much in the last decade or so. But a few decades in the past, I struggled with all of this stuff. I didn't understand the difference between a received and an achieved identity. And so in an achieved identity, success will go to your head and it tends to inflate you. Failure will go to your heart, it deflates you. And it's really how you know you have misplaced your identity. So if you lose your job or the bank account isn't as big as you thought it would be or you lose the relationship or any number of things, if that deflates you, it's because you have misplaced your identity. It's in your performance. It's an achieved identity. Now, there's actually really two kinds of achieved identity there's the modern culture kind of uh, achieved identity, and then there's the traditional culture. So the modern culture is more of the Western culture, and you decide who you want to be. If you want to be an artist or an athlete or a business owner or whatever it is, follow your heart, be true to yourself. Don't let anyone get in the way. That's, that's the modern Western culture. But the traditional culture, in traditional cultures, your family decided who you are to be. Your identity is rooted in pleasing your parents, living up to their standards taking on the family business or being the first one uh, in your family to go to college. But notice that both are based on your performance. It's based on what you do. It's your performance. If you're living up to standards, you feel good about yourself. If you're not living up to standards, you feel terrible about yourself. Now, one of the reasons, and listen to me, one of the reasons certain groups of people in our culture demonize other groups of people is because a performance-based identity is always at the expense of, of other people. It's always at the expense of other people. If you're proud of being smart, you're not actually proud of being smart, but proud of being smarter than other people. You're not proud of having money, but proud of having more money than other people. You're not proud of your political party, but proud that your party isn't like all the idiots from the opposing party. I mean, when you hear the parties going back and forth, that's, that's called idolatry. It's political idolatry, and it's, it's glory hunger is what it is. They're empty. That's why they got to push everybody else down to lift themselves up. I mean, it's rampant in our culture today. Just look around. And that's why John the Baptist is so, so amazingly phenomenal in his humility and boldness. And you can see it because it comes from his, his high view of God, indescribably great, unimaginably good. It's transformed his heart. And he realizes that he has a, a received identity, not an achieved identity. See, if you're performing well, you will be bold but not humble with an achieved identity, this performance-based identity. If you are not performing well, you will be humble but not bold. But John was both humble and bold because he didn't have a performance-based identity. He has neither an inflated or a deflated ego. Now, now let me just add to this really quick because you need to know the difference between religion and, and the gospel because religion... Religion is an achieved identity. You guys know that, don't you? Religion is an achieved identity. And by the way, you can go to churches here in the valley that are teaching a form of religion. They're teaching a form of moralism with very little gospel. Yeah, they might say that they believe the gospel, they embrace the gospel, and yet week in and week out, you get a good dose of moralism. It's more about achievement. So religion says, I obey, therefore God accepts me and blesses me. That's religion. That, that's, that's an achieved identity. But the gospel says, no, no, no. God accepts me and blesses me in Christ. Therefore, I want to obey. See, see, when you understand what you have in Jesus Christ, <laughs> not by your performance, but by his performance, oh my goodness. Are you kidding me? Why would you exchange that for, for an achieved identity when you have a received identity through Jesus Christ? It's out of this world. So John knew that in himself he is nothing, but in Christ he has everything. In myself I'm nothing, but when I look at him and what he has done for me, it fills me with indescribable and indestructible joy. In Christ I have all of the acceptance, security, and significance I'll ever need. Therefore, I don't work for my identity, but from my identity in Him, it's, it's not for my glory, but it's for His glory. Everything I do is for His glory. He has a received identity. That's your next fill in the blank. He has a received identity. Received identity, and this is the received identity. It works like this: I am more sinful than I ever dared to think, and at the same time, I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So the reality of our spiritual condition is that we are sinful, God is holy, we're separated from him, we're more sinful than we ever dared to think, but we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. I mean, it, it's, it's out of this world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, those who are in Christ have become a new creation. You have a new identity. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So he's identifying with the substitutionary death burial and resurrection of jesus christ that's called substitutionary atonement what he did he did for me in my place for my sins and so i receive his righteousness i've been crucified with christ it is no longer i who lives but it's christ who lives in me and the life that i now live i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me i'm i'm not inflated or deflated i'm filled with his presence for his glory that's why he says in Galatians 6:14, "May I never boast, except in the cross of Jesus Christ, to whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world." So how do we receive this identity? Well, little did John know that when he said in verse 27, "I'm not worthy to untie his sandal." Little did he know that this person, who is so high, came down so low. To wash his disciples' feet, and we see that in John 13. And this was a symbol of what he was about to do on the cross. Now, if Jesus had come down from heaven in great majesty, only telling us to follow his example, I'm an example. Follow my example, and you will be blessed. He would have been giving us a performance identity, just like everybody else. And, and there, are, there are beliefs out there and there are some Christian churches that would actually teach that. That's, that's what we need to do. We need to follow Jesus' example first and foremost. That's not what the gospel is. That's not the gospel. See, if, if we lived up to that standard of following his example, we would be bold but not humble. That's, that's the Pharisees and if we weren't living up to his standard, we would be humble but not bold. But he didn't come down in majesty but in humility. He emptied himself of his glory, Philippians 2. He had no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53. And then he went to the cross and he performed for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. So that when I put my faith in Christ Jesus, it's his performance that makes me right with God. He performed for me. It's his performance that makes me right with him. So that when I put my faith in Christ Jesus, it's his performance that makes me right with God. So what does that mean? It means that I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me, that eliminates pride. But he loved me so much, he wanted to die for me, that eliminates fear, giving me humble boldness, Here's what's so amazing about this is Jesus is not only unimaginably good, satisfying the deepest longing of our souls, but he's also indescribably great, giving us strength and courage to face anything. So let me ask you this question. How do I know that I really get that? Because man, my prayer for you week in and week out is that you get that. And the default mode of our heart is, is really a, a achieved identity. It's more of this performance-based identity rather than this received identity we have through Jesus Christ. How do you know that you get that? How do you know that you get that? Let me just... I want you to squirm a little bit there just for a minute. Nobody, nobody answer out loud. So how do you know that you really get what I've just talked about? Humble boldness. Obviously, you're going to have a humble boldness in your life. And you're going to have that sense of, wow, he's great and he's good. You're going to have that. I think you're going to tremble at God's word, certainly. I talked about that last weekend. I asked you this question, which of these are least taught, the greatness of God or the goodness of God? And it's actually the greatness of God because when I come across a lot of Christians these days, I don't see them really having that sense of the fear of the Lord. There's not a trembling at the word of God. There's not... As it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's just almost a cavalier and casual attitude about God, and you don't see that. And So I think you would see more of that. So you'd see a humble boldness based on the greatness and the goodness of God. Certainly, all of that. So how do you know you get it? Is this guy going to tell us? No, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to figure it out on your own. Now, heres you're going to be just like John the Baptist. You're going to be just like John the Baptist. You'll be a voice telling people about Jesus. Now, listen to me. You won't be able to keep quiet about Jesus. He will so ravish your heart. You don't care about what people think about you but you will do it with love. You will speak the truth in love. In, in Acts 4, the early disciples were threatened by torture and death, but they couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. Is that crazy? Why? Because their heart was captivated by Christ. So, so how do I know I get it? I can't keep quiet about him. I become a voice in the wilderness. You'll be like, like John the Baptist. A voice. You'll be a voice. I was... Uh, my wife and I were at a local coffee shop here, uh, here just a couple streets over, I won't tell you the name, but, uh, <laughs> but we, we go to coffee shops a lot, but we were hanging out there and there's a couple DBers there and one was, uh, they were both part of Desert Breeze, one was a leader, one was an elder, and so my wife and I sat there and then the one left and then the elder came over and began to talk to us while we were sitting there. And I was kind of preferring for the message this weekend, but as we were talking, he began to share with us, and then when he got up and left, I asked my wife, I said, so so what did he talk about? What did he talk about? And she goes, he talked about Jesus. And he goes, What did that do to your heart? He says, Man, it stirred my heart the way that he was talking about Jesus. And we talked about a lot of things, but he he talked also about Jesus and about some things that he had been studying, about what God had been doing in his life. And he began to tear up as he shared with us, and it stirred our hearts and our appetite for Jesus. And I go, what did that do to you? She goes, Oh my goodness, it made me want to go home and read my Bible. Not that she doesn't read her Bible. She does a phenomenal job reading her Bible, but he said it stirred up within, within her. And I said, It did me too. I said, isn't that amazing? He's a voice. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about what's, what's almost second nature to him. Because you see, we are what we love. And what we love, we talk about. So all you got to do is listen to what what do you talk about. I would be able to come to you. And we sit down for any length of time. There should be a, some Jesus coming out of your life, okay? You should be saying, oh, man, I've been studying this verse. And this has been speaking to me. It's so comforting and yet convicting. Oh my goodness. So so do you stir people's hearts for Jesus? That's my my goal. Every weekend when you come in here, I'm not giving you a lecture, more information. Yeah, you're going to get information. Nor is it a motivational talk, action steps. Yeah, you're going to get action steps. No, I want your heart to be stirred for Jesus. If your heart's not stirred, Man, where's your heart? And what am I doing? I need to do a better job. I want so desperately for you to be captivated by Jesus more than anything. And that's, that's what we'll be like. You'll be just like John the Baptist. I'm just a voice. I don't have to feel like I'm eloquent or a great person in myself. I'm a nobody. But when I talk about Jesus, then I know that the power of God is coming through me and into other people's lives. It will be natural. It will be the overflow of your heart. Don't coerce it. Don't manipulate it. Don't control the conversation so you can get it in there sideways. It's gonna. If it's in there, it's coming out. That's all I'm saying. I mean, if you're walking in vital union and communion with him, it's going to come out of your life. You're going to talk about him. John the Baptist couldn't help but talk about him. Now, if you're abrasive when talking about Jesus, you don't realize he had to die for you. You need some humility. If you're afraid to talk about Jesus, you don't realize he wanted to die for you. You need boldness. You need to spend time with him. Now, this how I'm going to end. There's a new song by Casting Crowns. It's actually their whole CD. It just came out this last year. It's called Only Jesus. And it's a song, it's the cover song for, the, for uh, that whole CD. It's a phenomenal song. I just wanna to read to you some of the words because this is my heart for me and for you as we head into 2019. This is what he says. This is the beginning of the song. He says, make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart, above all else, make a name the world remembers. But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. That's what he's talking about there. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers, but Jesus is the only name to remember. I would sing it, but I would wreck it, okay? (laughs) And it's so much better if you hear the song, okay? So if you go online, you can hear it on YouTube or something like that, but it's just, it's beautiful. To make a name the world remembers, but Jesus is the only name to remember. And then he says, The group goes on and says, and I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won will crumble into the dust when it's said and done. Because all that really mattered, did I live the truth to the ones I love. Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? Jesus is the only name to remember. We're gonna pray that, but uh, let me just say, next weekend we start a brand new teaching series, 2019 unstoppable force, we're going to be working our way through 1 Timothy. The gates of hell won't prevail against us. We're going to talk about this unstoppable force, the church, us, and we're going to also talk about how to become everything Christ died to make us. That's where we're headed in the new year. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. I'm going to pray that song. So, Father God, may we... Your people at Desert Breeze, be a humble and bold voice in the wilderness of Phoenix and beyond in 2019. We don't want to leave a legacy. We don't care if they remember us. Jesus is the only name we want people to remember. We've only got one life to live, so may we let every second point to him. May we live the truth to the ones we love And let our lives be proof that there is only one whose name will last forever. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 Love you guys. Have a happy new year.